Welcome into the DC Debrief for Friday, June 9th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolnes, and coming up on the Debrief this week, former President Donald Trump indicted again. We'll have the details as the 2024 presidential field grows even larger. Three more Republicans join as President Biden welcomes Britain's prime minister to the White House with the war in Ukraine top of mind. And we'll talk about a surprise decision from the Supreme Court on voting rights and gerrymandering. Plus, we'll have a special guest on to talk about the horse race The top 10 contenders for the GOP. Yes, I know there are only nine, but you can't do a top 10 list with nine people. So we're going to get to all that coming up here in the next few minutes of the DC debrief. A reminder to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is you get your podcast, and tell a friend, a family member about the pod. Remember, the mission here is to provide you with the best information free of bias or opinion on what's happening in Washington with an emphasis on the stuff that matters most in your life. And I think you'll find that the stuff you hear, you may not hear anywhere else, or you may hear us talk about it a little bit differently. Uh, but whatever the case is, I hope we we are a unique option for you as you uh, digest political podcasts. So please leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts once you follow the show. Now, before we get to the debrief, want to just take a second to reflect on news that I am sure many, if not most of you, already know as I imagine a lot of the listeners to this podcast are also viewers of the 700 Club and um, many of the other programs that we have, Faith Nation, the other programs that we have, Christian World News uh, on uh, on CBN News. And that, of course, is the passing of Christian Broadcasting Network founder Pat Robertson, who died at the age of 93 this week. And Pat had quite an impact on the world of politics. It really, I think, is unparalleled among evangelical Christians. After he ran for president in 1988, uh, he started the Christian Coalition in 1989, leading a Republican wave into Congress in the early 1990s. Since his passing, uh, tributes have been pouring in from the political world, lawmakers offering their condolences and reflecting on his legacy, including Donald Trump on Truth Social, who said, Today, the world lost an incredible and powerful voice for faith and freedom. Pat Robertson showed us that belief in God produces results that can change the course of history. Pat's legacy lives on in the many endeavors and lives that he touched. He will be greatly missed. Our hearts and prayers are with his family. Senator Lindsey Graham uh, replied to us. He did a um, an interview with us, which uh, you can see on the 700 Club or on Faith Nation. Uh, But he also released a statement on Twitter saying, Pat Robertson was a force for the faith. He used the power of television to spread the gospel and inform the public regarding the great issues of the day. He was a Ronald Reagan national security Republican, and Israel had no better friend. He led a consequential life that positively influenced our nation. Pat Robertson will be greatly missed. Rest in peace, my friend. And Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin said, Pat Robertson was an inspiring Virginian and a passionate servant of the Lord whose lifelong example leaves a legacy matched by very few. I was grateful for the time we shared together just last year at Regent University's commencement. While Suzanne and I are praying for the Robertson family, CBN family, and Regent family during this difficult time, we also know heaven is rejoicing this morning. And and that's just a smattering of some of the reaction that's come pouring in. We have a number of different, different tributes uh, that uh, that are being produced uh, that are going to air on the 700 Club, but it'll also be available on the CBN News YouTube channel uh, and at CBNNews.com. Uh, I know Faith Nation co-host Jenna Browder has a story with lots more specific political reaction from Capitol Hill that you can find at, on our website, CBNNews.com. So 
Uh, I would encourage everyone to check out the reaction to the uh, to the death of Pat Robertson and um, and everything that has been said about him uh, over these last 24, 48 hours since the news of his passing came along. All right, now let's get to the debrief. And at the top of the debrief this week, Donald Trump says he's being indicted in the classified document scandal. The former president released a statement on Truth Social on Thursday, early Thursday evening, and then released a press release via email, and then finally a four-minute video proclaiming his innocence of the charges. They go after a popular president, a president that got more votes than any sitting president in the history of our country by far and did much better the second time in the election than the first. And they go after him on a boxes hoax, just like the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax, and all of the others. It's just been going on for seven years. They can't stop because it's election interference at the highest level. There's never been anything like what's happened. I'm an innocent man. I'm an innocent person. This involves the classified documents found at Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago and Charges by the federal government that Trump misled them as they conducted a one and a half year inquiry over the documents. Trump was indicted earlier this year in the Stormy Daniels hush money case, and this would be a criminal indictment on federal charges. So the second time that that Trump has been indicted. Speaker Kevin McCarthy weighed in with a statement that reads, it is unconscionable for a president to indict the leading candidate opposing him. Joe Biden kept classified documents for decades. I and every American who believes in the rule of law stand with President Trump against this grave injustice. House Republicans will hold this brazen weaponization of power accountable. In his defense, at a news conference that we're going to talk about in just a second with the British prime minister earlier on Thursday, before the announcement by Trump, President Biden was asked during a news conference with the British prime minister whether about allegations that House Republicans are making that he is directing and like you heard Speaker McCarthy essentially say, he said that the president uh, is charging President Biden with, with these charges. Obviously, there are House Republicans like Nancy Mace who feel that the president is directing the Justice Department to go after Donald Trump as a way of trying to knock him out of the presidential race, to which the president responded. I have never once, not one single time, suggested to the Justice Department what they should do or not do relative to bringing a charge or not bringing a charge. I'm honest. Trump has been charged with seven counts in the indictment. That's according to numerous reports in the Associated Press, CNN and elsewhere. Uh, And at least one of them appears to be conspiracy. The indictment remains sealed. The Justice Department has not made any formal announcement. The charges will be brought in Florida, not Washington, D.C. And that is potentially good news for the Trump defense team as they see that it's likelier they'll find voters more sympathetic to the former president than if the case was being tried in Washington, D.C. Trump said in his statement that he was summoned to appear at the federal courthouse in Miami on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So that is when we are likely to see more of what's going to happen. I imagine the Justice Department will make a formal announcement uh, in the intervening days. But no doubt reaction will come in from both sides on, on this indictment over the next 24 to 48 hours, and certainly on the Sunday shows, you're going to hear a whole lot about it. 
Item number two, the 2024 presidential field grows even larger, a big week for the Republican nominees. Uh, three new candidates making it official. On Tuesday, 2016 candidate and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie threw his hat into the ring, making the announcement in New Hampshire, where he spent much of his speech attacking his former friend. Donald Trump made us smaller by dividing us even further and pitting one group against another, different groups pitted against different groups every day. On Wednesday, former Vice President Mike Pence made clear what most had expected for months, that he would also seek the nomination against his former boss, Donald Trump. Today, before God and my family, I'm announcing that I'm running for president of the United States of America. And a surprise candidate jumps into the fray, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. To unlock the best of America, we need a leader who's clearly focused on three things, economy, energy, and national security. And that is, and that is why, and that is why today I'm officially announcing I'm running for the president of the United States of America. That now makes nine candidates total. Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Asa Hutchinson, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Doug Burgum, and Vivek Ramaswamy, the nine major candidates. There are a couple of others seeking the nomination, Michigan businessman Perry Johnson and conservative talk radio host Larry Elder. Uh, one potential Republican candidate who appeared to be heading towards jumping in, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, said this week that he will stay out of the race. Kind of wants to play kingmaker, it sounds like. He feels he can have more of an impact on the outside. He says he will endorse and campaign for the candidate he thinks has the best chance of winning in November of 2024. Now, it's important to remember that not all of these candidates are going to stay in the race the whole time. And when it comes time to debate, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel has laid down certain rules that the that candidates must Certain, a certain threshold of support, essentially, that they must get in order to participate in the debate. The first debate will be in Milwaukee. It'll take place on August 23rd, and in order to take part, candidates will need to be polling above 1% nationally, have at least 40,000 unique donors to their campaign, which is why you're going to hear a lot of these guys talking about wanting to get those $1, $5, $10 donations from, from folks online. You get 40,000 of those, you may not draw a lot of money, but it at least gets you on the debate stage. And every candidate must sign a pledge to support the party's eventual nominee, which is kind of an interesting situation for someone like Chris Christie, who his his major points of attack are going to be to go after Donald Trump. Would he support the nominee if it's Donald Trump? That's one of the questions he's going to have to have to figure out in order to participate in this debate. And also, uh, not for nothing, but Recently retired Harvard professor and activist Cornell West announced that he's running, but not, of course, as a Republican. He will run as a member of the People's Party. Uh, we're going to talk to Niall Stanage, political reporter for The Hill on the GOP presidential horse race. In fact, he's the White House columnist for The Hill, uh, and he came out with a, a his uh, ranking of the top 10 GOP presidential candidates recently. And so we're going to talk to him about that list and uh, see how he is ranking the horse race right now. Item number three, President Biden welcomed UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to the White House. The two leaders held a news conference after their meeting where the war in Ukraine 
was one of the big topics. I believe we'll have the funding necessary to support Ukraine as long as it takes. And uh, I believe that uh, we're going to that that support will be real, even though there are you hear some voices today on Capitol Hill about whether or not we should continue to support Ukraine and for how long we should support them. Of course, the United States and the United Kingdom, very, very close allies. They also agreed to step up cooperation on the clean energy transition and emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. Uh, they also discussed China economic security, uh, a critical minerals agreement, uh, as well as a number of other items. So uh, this visit to Washington was Sunak's first since becoming Britain's prime minister back in October. Item number four, gas stoves and AM radio. One week after the debt ceiling drama was at long last disposed of, Republicans in the House set their sights on more kitchen table or, in this case, kitchen appliance topics like gas stoves, voting on two bills that would prevent government regulators from banning those stoves entirely or that would create an energy conservation standard on new stoves that would eliminate gas as a fuel source. So as a fuel source, some states have begun banning the use of gas in stoves, furnaces, water heaters and other items as a way of reducing fossil fuel emissions. House number 3, Elise Stefanik, talking about the opposition to banning gas stoves. The preferred cooked up appliance for tens of millions of Americans. This week, House Republicans will proudly pass the Save Our Gas Stoves Act and the Gas Stove Protection and Freedom Act. Well, not so fast. As it turns out, the House did not get to vote on those bills uh, this week, or at least in the middle of the week as of this recording. A squabble among conservative Republicans and Speaker McCarthy over the debt limit deal that allowed them to block those gas stove bills from reaching the floor. Republicans blocking this red meat Republican proposal as a way for those conservatives to show McCarthy they can still mess up his agenda unless he gives in to their demands. So um, we'll see where this where the gas stove bills end up. But uh, that what what essentially happened is these ten or twelve Republicans are are essentially refusing to vote on a set of rules that would govern the debate over the over, over these bills. And so if you can't get the rules, if you can't get the, the rules agreed to, the bill can never come to the floor. Now, traditionally, the party in power always approves the rules for the debate. It's it's never a question. But in this case, because there is this split faction in the Republican Party, these these conservatives, 10 to 12 conservatives are are sticking it to Speaker McCarthy and they're wanting concessions from him. What they say is that he hasn't kept promises and that he wants them to adhere to the promises that he made. Some of these promises that were not necessarily written down on paper, maybe some oral agreements, handshake agreements, whatever, whatever it may be. But it's clear some negotiation is continuing here at the end of the week before these Republicans will vote to allow uh, on the rules to govern the debate over items like gas stoves and pretty much everything else that Republicans would want to vote on right now. So uh, the House of Representatives stalled as all this is going on. And that's a lot of in the weeds type stuff. But that's that's one of the things that's gumming up stuff getting done at the moment. Now, as a in addition to the gas stoves, uh, this is more of a bipartisan issue. A House hearing this week on AM radio in cars was held. As, and as a longtime radio guy here, this is near and dear to my heart. Some automakers in recent years have stopped putting an AM radio option in their new cars, but some in the hearing this week believed 
that local radio is one of the last places for local and community news programming, religious programming, and other mediums that FM and satellite radios either will not or cannot provide. And this is a bipartisan issue. There's a lot of agreement on both sides of the aisle that AM radio needs to remain in automobiles. Republican Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers is one of them. My constituents in eastern Washington rely on AM radio. It's how they hear the news in their communities, listen to sports, and receive information during emergencies. In many parts of my district, FM radio is spotty. And there's no access to broadband. So AM radio is the only option. Now, a bill is making its way through Congress and has broad bipartisan support. Lawmakers noting it's still an essential part of our emergency alert infrastructure. And thus far, most of the losses of AM radio have been in electric cars because these auto manufacturers say that the new electric batteries and the hybrids and the the electric cars interferes with the AM signal and that it's cost prohibitive for them to try and figure out a way to make it quieter so that the AM signal will will work in these cars. But um, one motor company, Ford, has already reversed course and said that after saying they were going to eliminate AM radio in future cars, they will continue to make it available. Lawmakers say automakers must figure out a way to improve poor reception quality in newer cars in order to keep AM radio alive. Item number five, The Supreme Court supports the Voting Rights Act. This was a surprise decision. There were four decisions this week, but one in particular to tell you about, and it's Allen v. Milligan. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined the three liberal justices in a five to four ruling saying that Alabama discriminated against black voters when it drew its seven congressional districts last year. This is seen as a major victory for the Voting Rights Act, and with a conservative Supreme Court, there are many court insiders who believed that they were going to go the other way on this one. Alabama will now have to redraw its congressional map to include a second majority black district. Black voters currently make up a majority of the voting age population in just one district in Alabama, despite making up a quarter of the state's population. Now, Alabama could have easily drawn a second majority black district, uh, as the challengers in the case argued. They offered some sample maps with possible configurations on how to do that. Last year, a three-judge panel unanimously agreed with that argument and ordered the state to, to go ahead and change those maps. And That panel included two judges who were appointed by Donald Trump. They said that the question of whether the state had violated the law was, quote, not a close one. And so it appears as though the Supreme Court agrees with that assessment. This also now opens up the possibility and likelihood that other districts with similar issues will now be forced to redraw their congressional maps. So this is not just an Alabama thing. This could rear its head in other states that have had maps drawn up in similar ways. So this could have reverberations in some red states that may be forced to do the same thing that Alabama now has to do. And that could mean two to four congressional seats could flip from from Republican to Democrat in 2024. And your gentle reminder that Republicans have just a four-seat majority in the House. So this was a big ruling by the Supreme Court this week in terms of the Voting Rights Act, gerrymandering, and districting, and and, and drawing new districts uh, in these different states. We'll see how it obviously pans out here over the next few months, which other states are forced to to do the same thing. Finally, 
The House drops FBI Director Ray contempt charges. Chairman James Comer's threats to hold Ray in contempt of Congress have apparently worked. As the director said, he will now provide the committee with a document that shows a well-regarded informant heard from a secondary source that then-Vice President Biden was involved in a pay-for-play deal with a foreign national, all part of the committee's investigation into Hunter Biden and Biden family financial dealings. So uh, the threats by Comer to hold FBI Director Ray in contempt unless he gave this document to the entire committee seems to have worked. Last week, Comer allowed the two heads of the committee, Comer and Jamie Raskin, to look at them in a secure facility. That wasn't enough for Comer. And this week, on Thursday, they would have started contempt proceedings if Ray hadn't capitulated, which he, which he of course, has done. All right. With the debrief over now, let's get to today's deep dive. Well, as I mentioned earlier on the podcast, three more Republican presidential candidates have jumped into the 2024 fray. Chris Christie, former Vice President Mike Pence, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. Joining me to talk about the race and helping me to rank the candidates is Niall Stanage, White House columnist for The Hill. Niall, thank you so much for coming on the D.C. Debrief. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you, sir. And I love the article that you wrote for The Hill recently where you basically looked at the candidates and ranked them. And that speaks to my sports-loving heart. You know, we do rankings, power rankings all the time, so I think it's great. From my count, there are nine official candidates in the mix now, so you obviously have one on your list that has not officially declared, and we'll get to him in a minute. But first, let's start at the bottom. Governor Doug Burgum from North Dakota at number 10. And I think the question most folks listening have is, why is he running? It is a great question, and I don't think that he himself has necessarily answered it with great clarity yet. Now, he did put out a very polished video just before he made his candidacy official. Um, he's obviously a you know very strongly socially conservative person. He also is an independently wealthy person, having built up a, a business. Um, but... Is that enough? Is that biography compelling enough to get past a lot of the other candidates in the race, <clears throat> excuse me, who are much more um, high wattage figures or have much bigger mm -hmm. national profiles? One of the fundamental difficulties that Governor Burgum faces is a huge number of people have never heard of him or had never heard of him up until he was uh, announced as a potential presidential candidate. So that mm -hmm. in itself is a real difficulty for him. Yeah. I, and as someone who covers politics and, and Washington, D.C. quite closely, I had to look him up. <laughs> I'm yes. not sure. I'm sure I'm not the only one that that had to do that. But I know a lot of times these these kinds of figures, they jump into a race not having much name recognition so that they can get the name re recognition maybe for next time. That's right. No. It, and it could be uh, something that he is doing for that reason. I think uh, one of the interesting things about politics maybe over the past, I don't know, three cycles or so, is that there has been an increase in people running for president, not really with the expectation they might win, and not always necessarily to raise, you know, particular um, policy agenda items, but almost as a promotional vehicle. And we see yeah. people, not all of them, you know, 
joke politicians by any standards, but someone like, for example, Mike Huckabee, the former governor of Arkansas, was not really widely known until he ran for president in 2008, did much better than people anticipated, and, you know, he remains a, a national figure. Nobody thinks he's going to run for president again, but he's a nationally known political figure in a way that he simply wasn't before he, he ran for the presidency. The the late Herman Cain, a different kind of candidate, obviously, but he did uh, boost his profile very, very significantly when he ran for president. That's very, very true. Uh, looking at number nine on your list, former Governor Asa Hutchinson, does he have enough juice to get some cameras on him and take some of the tension away from the non-Trumpers? So he's certainly been willing to be widely interviewed by the media. He has put in a lot of appearances. I think for him, a bit like Governor Burgum, who Governor Burgum is, I would say, a more fervently conservative figure. Uh, for former Governor Hutchinson, again, it does get to that problem of firstly charisma, which with with which I don't think he's um, over-endowed, and also the question of what the reason to run is. Now, I think uh, Asa Hutchinson would argue that he would like to return the Republican Party to what it uh, has been, at least in the in the pre-Trump years, and that he considers himself a quite classic, in a way, Republican, you know, fairly socially conservative, fairly business-friendly, uh, sensible, as he would see it. But the problem is whether that's what the Republican electorate wants right now, and also, are there other people, and we can get to them in a minute, who might be offering a version quite close to that with bigger name recognition, with a bit more charisma, with a greater capacity to, to raise money? All of those things are challenges, I think, for uh, former Governor Hutchinson. One of the things you just mentioned with Governor Hutchinson is he doesn't have it doesn't seem as though there's a clear reason why he's running with number eight on your list. Governor Chris Christie, it seems he has laid out the reason that is to go after Donald Trump. Can he win that way? And if not, who does he help the most by making his primary target Donald Trump? It's difficult to argue that he can win that way, because when we look at opinion polls of Republican voters, and I stress Republican voters rather than the general electorate, approval of former President Trump is really rather high, generally in most polls between 75 and 80 percent. Governor Christie, as you say, has positioned himself as the most anti-Trump candidate. No, it's a free country. He can, he's welcome to do that if he wishes. There just isn't particular evidence that that position is popular within today's Republican Party. And indeed, in other elections, we look at uh, foes of the former president who have been vanquished in primaries, uh, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney being the obvious example. So who does Christie help? Well, him helping anyone depends on him getting some level of support and would that then erode the support for another candidate? Mm -hmm. We don't know because he's polling at about 1%. The other possibility with Christie briefly is that he is a rather gifted debater. And could he wound Trump in debates in a serious way, really cause even softer supporters of the former president to reconsider. That would be one of the more obvious ways in which Chris Christie could make an impact in this race, even though I think it's a race he's unlikely to win.
So at number 10, number 9, and number 8 on the list are three governors. At number 7, you have this gentleman who's not a politician, ranked higher than either of those three men, Vivek Ramaswamy. Why do you have him higher than the three governors who have this governing experience, this executive experience in government? Why are they ranked below him on your list? In summary, because it seems, looking at the available evidence, that Republican voters are quite eager for someone who is not enmeshed in the establishment or a completely conventional figure. We see this in both parties to an extent, but for the purposes of this conversation, we're talking about Republicans. There Mm -hmm. is, I think, a dissatisfaction with overall political culture right now. I think there is an appetite for outsiders. And in fact, to be fair to Mr. Ramaswamy, if you look at opinion polls, he is registering, at least. I mean, he's not he's not contending with the major, major candidates, but he's right. getting a degree of support. He's also, incidentally, been able to uh, attract a certain amount of media attention to himself with some headline-grabbing proposals. So, I mean, we're still at a point in these rankings where I'd be surprised if any of these people, including Mr. Ramaswamy, ended up as the Republican nominee. But he has shown some evidence or some ability to move the polls. And it looks like he has enough support to make it to the debate stage, which is always obviously the the big stumbling block for people who may not have that name recognition, but has been working towards. And he got in early, so that also helps him. Number six, uh, the other gentleman who announced this week, former Vice President Mike Pence, made history as one of the only vice presidents to openly compete against his former boss for the White House. It is quite a 180 from these two gentlemen when they ran for president, and he was the running mate the first two times in 2016 and 2020. And obviously, you you mentioned the fact that Doug Burgum and even Asa Hutchinson don't really have that name recognition among mainstream Republicans. Mike Pence has name recognition coming out of his ears. My question is whether that's helping him or hurting him. Great question. There is one element in which it is helping him, which is that in a normal or more normal political environment, Mike Pence would be a strong candidate, former vice president, former governor, very deep roots in the uh, evangelical or or faith-based community. So all of those things speak to his strength. The problem for Pence, in short, is he is synonymous with, firstly, former President Trump, and secondly, breaking with former President Trump over January the 6th. Now, uh, my personal view is that history will uh, treat Mr. Pence kindly for what he did on January the 6th. The Republican electorate, however, is not treating him particularly kindly for that. If you look at the uh, into the granular detail of a lot of opinion polls, the negative sentiment toward Pence from Republican voters is significantly higher than it is for most other uh, candidates or frontline candidates, at least. So I think that speaks to the problems that Pence faces, even as he is such a well-known figure. At number five on your list, this is the one person on your list who has not officially declared, and you have him kind of in the middle of the pack here, and that's Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. What are the odds that you think he enters the race at this point and becomes candidate number 10? They are less than 50-50, but they're not zero. Um, Governor Youngkin appeared to rule out a bid a while back, and then a very uh, strikingly sort of presidential video from he did. His- 
his team <laughs> appeared for no obvious reason. Uh, and so that sort of got people chatting, um, got people speculating about the possibility of a presidential run. It's also worth noting that Glenn Youngkin has always been very popular with Republican donors, in short, because he is conservative. He has not tied himself particularly closely to former President Trump, but he has been able to use um, some of the culture war issues in a way that has benefited him politically. He's a very intriguing political figure, and that's why he's so relatively high in our rankings here at the Hill, even though, as you say, he's, he's not an official candidate and may not become one, at least in this cycle. We shall see. At number four, Senator Tim Scott, the one Republican senator who's running for president. And he seems to be running on a message of positivity, trying to harken back to some of the things we used to hear Ronald Reagan talking about. And it seems as though he wants to portray himself in that image. What does he need to do in some of these early states in order to gain a foothold? He needs to show some evidence of voter enthusiasm for him. And that can come in the form of advancing in opinion polls, could come in the form of drawing big crowds, could come in the form of getting significant small dollar donations, as they're called. You know, a lot of people chipping in 10 or 20 or 40 bucks to his campaign. I think you're right to point out that he does try to uh, present a more optimistic view of the conservative movement and of his own beliefs than is the case with some other candidates. And of course, I, I don't think we should overlook the fact that he is the only black Republican in the Senate. And so he has uh, foregrounded issues of race, but in a way that is setting himself against this idea that, you know, America is an irredeemably racist country or that there are really uh, systemic problems that prevent um black Americans from reaching their potential. He presents a much um, sunnier version of that uh, of that debate. And so that's going to be clearly something that is uh, proudly central to his campaign, I would say. There are three candidates of color in this race, Ramaswamy, uh, Tim Scott, and uh, number three on your list, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, who had her CNN town hall the other night. She uh, made some waves talking about gun policy, also talking about woke culture in America. She has foreign policy and governing experience at the state level. What does she need to do to nudge ahead of DeSantis on this list, who you have, spoiler alert, I don't, I'm not, I don't think I'm blowing the lid off things here by, by just giving a peek under the curtain and letting you know he's number two. That, right, that's exactly right. So for Governor Haley, or, or Ambassador Haley, we should perhaps say, former ambassador to the United Nations, she mm-hmm. has to really show again that she is, that her brand of republicanism or conservatism is resonating with voters. There is some evidence of that, but it's not abundant. There has been at least one poll in Iowa that has shown her making progress and beginning to challenge Governor DeSantis. And of course, as we know, the Iowa caucuses can change everything at a stroke. Having said that, in national polls, Nikki Haley is still quite a long way behind. She doesn't do brilliantly in national polls. She's around 4 or 5% typically. And so one of the questions, again, with her is, are Republicans buying what she is selling? She's a very talented politician. And I'm not sure if you've seen Nikki Haley you know, in person at times or not. Mm-hmm. But at retail politics, 
she just seems objectively very good. Um, but that, you know, that can be useful, particularly in those early voting states of Iowa and New Hampshire. From what I can tell, her campaign is putting quite a lot of stock in her ability to to bring voters over to her side almost one by one or, or event by event in those early voting states. It's an interesting strategy, and we'll have to see if it works. All right, number two, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. At the beginning of the year, he seemed to be flying high. Uh, he was really close to, to Donald Trump, if not ahead of him in certain polls when, when they were looking at potential Republican candidates. And obviously, he's fallen far behind. He's he's at least 20 to 30 points behind in, in most polls. And even if you strip everybody else out, he's still significantly behind Donald Trump in most of the polling. So what do you make of his campaign strategy and his performance on the trail thus far? Does that explain the gap? It does to some extent. And I think even his performance before his candidacy became official is a contributory factor to that gap because there were a couple of missteps by Governor DeSantis, perhaps the most obvious being when he downplayed the war between Russia and Ukraine as a territorial dispute. Now, to be clear, there are lots of people who do believe that it is that or who are sceptical about the current level and cadence of American support for Ukraine. But it there are more still in the Republican Party who adhere to a more hawkish hawkish position on that conflict and who want America to to use its muscle overseas in in essence. So that was a problem for Governor DeSantis and he subsequently tried to sort of get himself out of the mess into which he had uh, put himself in the first place. The interesting thing about his campaign to me is the extent to which he is trying to position himself to the right of former President Trump. So, for example, on the abortion issue, Governor DeSantis, of course, signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida. He has been very emphatic in uh, reinforcing or in standing by that position and has asked whether or why Trump has not been so clear. And the other element of all this is Governor DeSantis talking about his battles with Disney, which you know, you, you don't need me to re-explain here, but he again <laughs> feels that Trump yeah. has, in essence, sided with Disney in that dispute. So that's going to be really interesting to see whether the Florida governor can uh, create a space or a lane, as we sometimes say, for himself to the right of the former president. And he has a, a larger box to stand on than the guy, than the, the the men and women underneath him, or the men and men and woman underneath him. But at the moment, he still trails uh, former President Donald Trump quite significantly. And I know the Trump supporters are going to vote for him no matter what happens. Right? There's going to be news that comes down positively, negatively. There's a core of Trump voters that are going to that are going to vote for him no matter what. But it, I do wonder what would need to happen at this point. For him not to be the nominee? Again, all, all great questions. There are a couple of things that I think could uh, stop Trump from becoming the nominee. We know that he has a number of legal challenges, not just the charges on which he has been indicted in New York, but the possibility of further indictments to come. Now, how that all pans out is very interesting because so far it appears that a trial, assuming it takes place for the New York charges, would land right in the middle of primary season. Um, There has at times been a rallying around 
trumped by Republican voters when he's faced with these legal challenges or difficulties. But, you know, what if he were actually convicted, for example? Mm -hmm. Would Republicans think, well, we might like him, we might not like him, but we're not going to win a general election with someone who has been convicted of an offence? Of course, the former president denies all wrongdoing. The other thing that I don't think we want to skate past is that um, former President Trump is about to turn 77. So that means that he is less able to present himself as any sort of generational change. Could there be a groundswell of opinion saying we really need to turn the page from the Trump-Biden era? I think that does pose a fairly significant challenge for the former president. And I have heard a couple of, I think it's DeSantis who has really hit on this too, that if Donald Trump were to win this election, he would only be able to serve one term. And I, w- I wonder if other Republicans will join in as and making that more of a talking point and that they could all they could all potentially be there for eight years, whereas Donald Trump would be there for four years. Yes, that's right. And of course, that feeds into a broader argument that Governor DeSantis makes. Governor DeSantis really is presenting himself as someone who would pursue a Trump-like agenda, but in his telling, would be better able to get things done. And so it is interesting as to whether that limitation that would be placed upon Trump of one more term would be a real problem in the minds of voters. The other point I think we should just mention briefly is there is the argument with former President Trump, is he unelectable in a general election? He did lose the popular vote both times that he ran for president, though obviously he won the Electoral College in 2016. Um, But you do hear concern from voters, not all of them adamant opponents of Mr. Trump's, who just wonder, is he just too divisive or polarizing a figure to win another general election? That, I think, is another serious challenge for him and therefore a significant opportunity for DeSantis. Well, it feels as though the candidates who are going to declare have declared. Of course, we'll wait and see about Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. And maybe there's another there's another stray out there who will enter the race as well that we don't know about right now. But for it seems as though we have our roster together. And so we'll see how things play out as Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina draw ever closer. And folks, you'll want to be reading everything that Niall Stanage is writing about as the White House columnist for The Hill. Niall, thank you so much for joining me today on the DC Debrief. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much much for having me, John. And that will do it for this week's DC Debrief. Thank you all for listening and joining me. I want to remind you once again, tell a friend about the podcast and how to find us. Share it with folks who want the straight skinny on everything happening in the nation's capital. And if you wouldn't mind, leave a five-star rating and a review of the show on Apple Podcasts, if you are so inclined. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I'll talk to you all again next week here on the DC Debrief. DC Debrief.